Hello everyone. This podcast will introduce you to the much influential work of the British theorist Raymond Williams. Williams is known for establishing the field of inquiry known as cultural materialism that combined methods of literary analysis and the broad theoretical frameworks of Marxism in order to understand the complexity of culture and its relation to wider society and economy. Williams's work was also central to the formation of the Center for Contemporary Culture and Society in Birmingham during the early 1960s that self-descriptively used the term cultural studies for its academic practice. Over the last decades, cultural studies has flourished as an important component of academic work and university syllabi and has even attracted a celebratory status across the globe. But this wider acceptance and institutionalization does not always correspond to the moment of its inception and the uneasy augmentation it effected on the intellectual division of labor that existed then. Lawrence Grossberg and others in the book Cultural Studies says, it is undoubtedly cultural studies' material and economic progress that contributes as much as its intellectual achievement to its current vogue. In the United States, where the boom is especially strong, many academic institutions, presses, journals, hiring committees, conferences, university curricula, have created significant investment opportunities in cultural studies. Sometimes, in ignorance of its history, its practitioners, its relation to traditional disciplines, and its life outside the academy. This remark is very significant at a time when cultural studies is seen as another discipline among others, and as an intellectual practice is getting increasingly institutionalized, whereas historically it has been anti-disciplinary in its spirit. But what is the history that the authors refer to here? Can it have one unified and singular history that we can hark back upon? which from its own methodological premise sounds contradictory. Cultural studies is often associated with the intellectual work of the British theorists, including its major figure Stuart Hall, and its origins as an intellectual practice is referred back to the inception of Triple CS in Birmingham, that as I pointed out earlier, used this term self-descriptively. Raymond Williams's work, Culture and Society and the Long Revolution, Richard Hogarth's The Uses of Literacy, E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class, etc., are recognized as the early path-breaking texts that established the field. Later, the rigorous work on youth subcultures, the social phenomenon of mugging, media and communication, feminism, race and the question of identity, etc. interrupted the already established frameworks of social inquiry and provided new impetus to the analysis of culture. But Stuart Hall himself, among others, have always pointed to the need to understand culture studies as carrying a plurality of discourse and ideological or political positions within it. In a way, one might say, 
after all that we still do not know even after the abundance of critical texts that bear its mark what the bibliography of a cultural studies thesis looks like at least one can confidently assert that there can never be a proper one an assertion that is crucial for carrying forward the legacy of its early practitioners for when we refer to its history we are always invoking the doubts uncertainties openness and the provisionality of its statements likewise revisiting these early moments and texts which never render themselves complete or closed may still be crucial for the insights they might provide resulting in what hall would call new theoretical gains it is in this spirit that we try to understand the contributions made by raymond williams williams played a crucial role in redefining the approaches to the fields of literary studies marxism and cultural theory adult education modern communications etc and he remained a socialist thinker throughout his life affirming his adherence to what he called a democratic long revolution but in doing so he also reconceived what socialism might mean for the present and future williams was in the forefront of the new journal new left review that was started in the in the 1950s and was the main drafter of the may day manifesto published in 1968 williams came from a working class background and this personal history had a significant influence upon his work and thought his father was a railway worker and his family belonged to an agricultural community in the rural welsh area called pandy further he was also familiar with the trade union movement in this part of england which cultivated in him a sense of political participation from early years his participation in the second world war further strengthened his feeling for a socialist internationalism this reliance upon personal history finds its way to a renewed understanding of the role of experience itself in theorization williams says i learned the reality of hegemony i learned the saturating power of the structure of feeling of a given society as much as from my own mind and my own experience as from observing the lives of others all through our lives if we make the effort we uncover layers of this kind of alien formation within ourselves and deep in ourselves from a personal viewpoint culture was for williams something that brought the experience of inequality so coming from the working class background his entry into the university system would have led him to ponder over the social distance at which he was placed from the citadel of culture and learning a realization that immediately compelled him to argue for the value of his own culture and defend his own lived experience of a working class culture but the defense was not as his later works were to argue simply of a working class culture but what he termed a common culture by which williams meant there is no special class or group of men who are involved in the creation of meanings and values either in a general sense 
or in specific art and belief. Such creation could not be reserved to a minority, however gifted, and was not, even in practice, so reserved. The meanings of a particular form of life of a people at a particular time seemed to come from the whole of the common experience and from its complicated general articulation. The best example that one can provide for this is language, which is not the creation of any one individual, though individuals may extend and deepen its possibilities. But culture is not produced or possessed by everyone alike today, because the conditions and means of production are not accessible to everyone in the same way. The experience of this marginality had profound impact upon Williams's thinking. In the words of Grossberg and others, some of the founding figures of cultural studies like Williams and Hogarth came from working class families and indeed were among the first working class students to gain access to the elite institutions of British higher education. They need to make their own cultural heritage part of the culture universities study and remember helped motivate some of their early publications. Moreover, most of these people first taught not in universities, but in adult education programs outside the university. Cultural studies was thus forged in the face of a sense of the margins versus the center. But how exactly did Williams change the terrain of thinking about culture? A starting point would be to consider what, what was passed on as culture before Williams's intervention a key figure during the period being Matthew Arnold. A major preoccupation for Williams throughout his career was the redefinition of the word culture, which he wanted to distance from the exclusivist understanding advanced by critics like Matthew Arnold. We find in the essay, A Hundred Years of Culture and Anarchy, Williams pointing to the contemporary relevance of critically engaging with literary figures like Matthew Arnold even though they are separated by a hundred years. He says, Arnold's emphasis on culture, his kind of emphasis, was a direct response to the social crisis of those years. And what he, what he saw as opposed to culture was anarchy, in a sense very similar to many recent public descriptions of demonstrations and the protest movement. He did not see or present himself as a reactionary, but as a guardian of excellence and of human values. This remark captures the necessity to take writers like Arnold, for whom culture was the best which can be thought and said, and who shared a composite attitude that was equally liberal and reactionary. This might be more significant today when capitalism is increasingly mutating into forms of authoritarian regimes, shedding all its liberal claims that once ideologically sustained it. So, Williams's attempt was to move away from the Arnoldian way of looking at culture and to bring out the complexity that the term presented. In Williams's own words, we use the word culture in two senses, to mean a whole way of life that is, the common meanings, and to mean the arts and learning, the special processes of discovery and creative effort. I insist on both, 
and of the significance of their conjunction. Clearly, what is indicated here is the possibility of a renewed relationship between what is generally considered to be special, arts and learning, that which was valued by Arnold, and what is common or ordinary. By collapsing the strict division between these two domains, Williams achieves a democratization of culture. Learning and artistic practice is not a separate entity to be valued more than the ordinary, but is linked to the larger social reality and the worldly experience which always remain ordinary. No wonder the essay, Culture is Ordinary, starts with Williams's own experience of growing up in a vibrant countryside. This is again not to be understood only as a defense of an authentic working class culture, but as a fundamental methodological reappraisal of the relation between arts and learning and the everyday life. Such a democratization of culture leads to Williams's idea of a socialist future as well. He says, the only thing that we can say about culture in an England that has socialized its means of production is that all the channels of expression and communication should be cleared and open so that the whole actual life that we cannot know in advance, that we can know only in part even while it is being lived, may be brought to consciousness and meaning. Culture, therefore, is ordinary and is a resource for the building of a more inclusive socialist life. Williams is unambiguous about the role of industrialization, which he considers an important event which proved to be a resource for the democratic participation of a workers' culture in this long revolution. In Culture and Society, one of the foundational texts that created this rupture in thinking about culture, Williams takes this word quite historically as well, as a resource for modern democratic politics. In the foreword to the book, Williams says, The organizing principle of this book is the discovery that the idea of culture and the word itself in its general modern uses came into English thinking in the period which we commonly describe as that of the Industrial Revolution. What is indicated here is that not only the object of cultural analysis, but the very identification of those objects as cultural is a historical development. That is, what Williams is undertaking here is not simply an elaboration of the cultural practices or attitudes of the English society, but the historicization of the very conditions under which such a cultural analysis becomes possible. Culture as a concept then is both what inaugurates an interpretation of a whole set of historical attitudes and the very premise which is critically and historically analyzed. He refers to a new general theory of culture as a theory of relations between elements in a whole way of life. He also refers to the idea of an expanding culture as we live in an expanding culture. In the essay, The Analysis of Culture, Williams provides three general categories for defining the term culture, the ideal, the documentary, and the social. It is clear from his description that these three are to be located in a broad spectrum 
the ideal and the social share in the extremes. He does not give up the idealist position altogether, but thoroughly reforms it by saying that it does not refer to a state of human perfection, which implies a known ideal towards which we can move, but human evolution to mean a process of general growth of man as a kind, an assertion upon which William's humanism rests. Moreover, if one were to imagine culture as a process, as Williams emphasized often, the three definitions should be seen as the interrelated points that constitute the whole of the process. And the whole of culture is cemented by forms of affect that is most difficult to unearth. Williams says, The most difficult thing to get hold of in studying any past period is this felt sense of quality of life at a particular place and time, a sense of the ways in which the particular activities combined into a way of thinking and living. We are usually most aware of this when we notice the contrast between generations who never talk quite the same language or even we read an account of our lives by someone out from outside the community or watch the small differences in style or speech or behavior in someone who has learned our ways yet was not bred in them. This is what Williams calls the structure of feeling. He further distinguishes three levels of culture, the lived culture, what is left in the form of documentary evidence or period culture, the selective tradition that connects the lived culture with the period culture. A selective culture or tradition creates a general human culture and the, and the historical records of particular societies, but it also rejects considerable areas of what was once a living culture. Let me conclude by pointing to another methodological intervention that Williams makes, one that has not been sufficiently emphasized by scholars. This is with regard to the question of language and its relation to culture. Language, as I said earlier, is the most common possession of any people. Apart from the preoccupation with the term culture and its analysis, Williams always had a keen eye on the way language, that is ordinary speech, played a crucial role in social context and the analysis of cultural formations. It will not be wrong to say that the question of language was integral to Williams's method and he took it almost as an entry point for unpacking any cultural problem that was at hand to be examined and interpreted. In Culture and Society, Williams says, in the last decades of the 18th century and in the first half of the 19th century, a number of words which are now of capital importance came for the first time into common English use or where they had already been generally used in the language, acquired new and important meanings. There is in fact a general pattern of change in these words, and this can be used as a special kind of map by which it is possible to look again at those wider changes in life and thought to which the changes in language evidently refer. The words he referred to here are industry, democracy, class, art and culture, many of which had transformed or entered into the ordinary speech. 
The field which these changes cover is again a field of general change, introducing many elements which we now point to as distinctively modern in situation and feeling. There are many other aspects of Williams's path-breaking intellectual work that we have not considered here, such as his work on drama and other literary forms, the notion of the structure of feeling, on modern communication technologies including television, his contribution to rethink the Marxist understanding of culture, and a lot more. But I hope this brief introduction will persuade you to find out for yourself the richness of Williams's work and thought. Thank you.